I'm more convinced than ever, really, today, that the work of this community is about defining the future of business. People in this room, the work you're doing every day in the community, I think is beginning to set the direction. And we all are part of a larger movement that is growing around creating more equitable and sustainable local economies, cooperatively owned businesses, community land trusts, anchor institutions, worker organizing. There are a lot of different things happening, little nodes of things happening, that are trying to kind of change the nature of business, inform it, and get it to be more socially involved and socially uh, connected and active in making our communities better. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Get to Work from Red F Workshop. This podcast features Red F's president and CEO, Carlo Javits, in conversation with thought leaders and innovators who are making a difference in our communities. Normally, these conversations are one-on-one, but today we have something special. This episode was recorded live at the Social Enterprise Alliance Summit Conference in Chicago this past September. In this panel discussion, Carlos speaks with three amazing social entrepreneurs, Jaylon Adley, CEO of Refugee, Sonia Passi, founder and CEO of Free From, and returning podcast guest Maria Kim, who's the president and CEO of Kara. We hope you enjoy it. Let's get to work. All right. Well, we're very excited about this panel. I'm psyched to be with these amazing women. And uh, we just wanted to start out by introducing ourselves uh, to tell you just for a minute kind of what we do and then maybe something more personal or fun. <laughs> hope you've been thinking about this, <laughs> about ourselves uh, to introduce ourselves to you. So I'm Carla Javits. I'm the president and CEO of Red F. And uh, we fund and advise uh, social enterprises that are focused on uh, employment. And then we work side by side with SEA and many of you to build this incredible field. So we're very excited to be here. And uh, I think the fun fact I wanted to share today is this. Uh, 27 years ago, me and my partner were a little bit crazy and had two children nine days apart. <laughs> figure that out. <laughs> and uh, so they're now 27. And uh, my son just had the great blessing of having uh, a child. So I'm a grandparent for the first time. I'm very excited about that. And I would say, you know, on the theme uh, you just mentioned, your three children and sort of legacy and you know, I think, I've been thinking about it, you know, in this crazy world we're living in today, having a child is the ultimate uh, kind of burst of optimism, I think, about the future and what might be, and it certainly inspires me to work even harder, uh, and I'm excited because I know that she also will work alongside of all of you to create the better world we all want. So feeling very optimistic about that. Uh, My name is Maria Kim. I'm the CEO of CARA here in Chicago. I think CARA as boot camps and businesses that help people experiencing homelessness and poverty to get back to work. Um, We've been around for nearly 30 years now. And so Carla asked us to do the A side of our business card and the B side. My B side (laughs) is a service that's available to anyone across the U.S., especially those who are social entrepreneurs, so you're my target audience here, folks who typically are probably on a uh, compensation scale that maybe doesn't rival the private sector. So I do fashion consulting on a budget. Yeah, I'll go with you anywhere you want to go, but you have to try on anything I throw into the dressing room. And then afterwards, we get a cocktail or a coffee and talk about the experience. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> That's my B-side. 
Hi, everyone. Sorry about that. I'm Sonia. I'm the founder and CEO of Free From. Uh, and our mission is to create pathways to financial security and long term safety with and for survivors of intimate partner violence. Uh, we're a national organization based in LA. It's an honor to be here today. Uh, fun fact. <laughs> Fun not being the operative word. Um, my wife and I just started making movies together. Uh, we just executive produced a, f- a film about two Muslim women falling in love over the course of a day, told through the five calls to prayer. Uh, and it just got submitted to Sundance. So if you see me at the Oscars, wow. that's why. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Come on, <Hello>. sir. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Jaylon Adley, and I'm the CEO of Refuge. Um, we are a nonprofit that is based here in Chicago, but all of our programming is actually in Nairobi, Kenya. We work with unaccompanied, separated, and orphaned refugee girls, young women, and their children who have fled to Kenya uh, seeking safety and protection from conflict zones, including Somalia, South Sudan, and the Congo. Um, We run education programs for them, vocational training programs, and then our artisan collective, which is our social enterprise component, which we'll talk about a little later, but they make these beautiful scarves. They're also downstairs in the marketplace if you uh, feel like going a little early holiday shopping. Um, Let's see, fun fact. So kind of before stepping into this role, I've always kind of been interested in how can we use market-based solutions to break cultures of dependency um, and also kind of, you know, in this kind of realm of, of trauma-informed, um, I got certified to be a Reiki master last year, but I haven't tried it yet on anyone formally, but yeah, so I'm also a Reiki master. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, so now you know a little bit about all of us. <laughs> um, so before we start, just, just a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, I, I learned, I really learned about social enterprise in depth when I joined Red F, which is about, about 13 years ago. And I realized that a lot of the organizations and businesses I had worked with previously actually were social enterprises. And in a way, it, it gave me a different way to think about, to understand how to structure organizations that could achieve, you know, important social objectives but that had sort of the discipline and the imagination uh, to figure out new ways to fund the work so that it wouldn't only depend on contributions from donors and government and foundations, uh, but that actually we could have more uh, sustainability, certainly from the revenue that we generated, and honestly also more independence from some of the pressures that I think we all feel uh, you know, by those that are funding us. So to give give us a little more leeway to to do it the way we thought it should uh, should be done. And I'm more convinced than ever, really today, that the work of this community is about kind of as I mentioned. I, maybe I've now drunk the Kool Aid with Jim's uh, vision of the future, but really about defining the future of business. Uh, generally, writ large. I mean, it, it, you know, may be a ways off. I think it probably is. But I think, you know, people in this room, the work you're doing every day in the community, I think is beginning to set the direction. And we all are part of a larger uh, movement that, uh, you know, is growing around creating more equitable and sustainable local economies, cooperatively owned businesses, community land trusts, 
anchor institutions, worker organizing. There are a lot of different things happening, little nodes of things happening, that are trying to kind of change the nature of, of business, inform it, and get it to be uh, more socially uh, involved and socially uh, connected and active in making our communities better. Um, you know, and I think even though there's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of sensible skepticism, let's say, about the latest statement by the U.S. Business Roundtable uh, that affirms businesses' responsibility to all stakeholders, all of us in the community, not just uh, shareholders, I think it's nonetheless kind of notable that the U.S. Business Roundtable feels that it's incumbent upon it to make a statement like that right now. And that pressure is coming from many of you uh, in the room and all of our uh, colleagues. And I think it may take a long time to turn it into real action. And I think we all have a lot of a role to play in holding these count companies accountable. But the truth of it is, intention precedes action. Nothing's going to happen unless, you know, the business community begins to set out a different... Uh, intention and set of beliefs around what it thinks at least uh, it, it, it has to tell people it should do. Uh, and, you know, I, I strongly believe that, that their impetus and, and also um, the potential for real movement uh, to some extent depends on some of the actions that we take uh, and the work that we're doing. Uh, since I started in this sector, you know, one of the things that's impressed me above all, really, is the quality, the incredible quality of the people we've met, committed, knowledgeable, entrepreneurial, motivated, passionate people willing to take uh, risks. Uh, there's a lot of Red F staff in the room today. I want to acknowledge that. I feel very, very proud to work side by side with them, uh, the incredible team uh, at SEA. And now uh, we're going to hear from some of the best. Uh, who are here with me today, uh, and, you know, kind of the power of business women and how you think about things, uh, you know, in this sector. So we're going to just reflect on a few questions together. Uh, I encourage you to ask each other questions if things come to mind. Um, but let's just start with this one. So when you think about, there's obviously we're in a world of tremendous change right now. When you think about the changes that are happening in economics and politics, technology, culture, the environment, you know, take your pick. What, what are a couple of the trends uh, that have had a big impact uh, on the work that you do? And if you want to cite something that's had personal impact on you as an individual or a leader, you know, what are some of the trends? What's, what's happening out there that's really affecting you and the work you do? Who wants to go first? I can jump in. So I think for me... I am far more optimistic at this point that the private sector can do more mm -hmm. to change these kind of complex challenges that we're facing than the public and the social sector. We're seeing the public sector um, kind of in trouble. It's in crisis, not just here in the U.S., but we saw it you know, with Arab Spring. We're seeing in Europe these like large populist movements where citizens are kind of rising up and saying the government's not doing enough. Um, and the public sector is just not able to kind of solve these problems. And I, you know, I think it's interesting, one of the, you know, if we look at, if you go back to like the 50s and 60s, and if you would have told someone, 
oh, I go to work at this company called Google, and they have free food there, and they have a gym there, and they'd be like, what policies made that happen? But it's not, right? It's because of kind of technology and choice and that now as individuals who have talent, we're marketable and we are, we're not just this kind of disposable thing. These companies are changing, not because some policy came down, but because they know mm. if they want to get the top talent, they have to have these things in place. And so it, the, the power of us as consumers, but also the power of us as employees and individuals is now becoming stronger. And they're the ones, you have Patagonia, who's going to give all of their tax break to climate change. That's not because some policy came in. They're actually saying, policy was wrong. We're going to turn this around. We're going to do the right thing. So I think the power of the private sector to potentially create change right now is stronger while the public sector figures out what it's going to do in its day and age. I and how does, that. That, how does that manifest in your, your work, your life, you know? Yeah. How, yeah. Um, so it's inter- So I stepped into the refugee position in November, and it was a bit of a shift. So before that, I was working kind of on livelihoods for extreme poverty and ultra-poverty, but for the most part, they were citizens of the country where they resided, or at least had a right to work. Switch over to refugees in the humanitarian space, and they don't have a right to work. So in Kenya, refugees can't work. I can't get them work permits. I can't even get them bank accounts or M-Pesa accounts because of the policy issues. Um, so the reason why we have a social enterprise is so I can at least provide them an income at the level of an internship, which I'm allowed to in Kenya, and then technology, the open marketplace, I can sell these products in an open marketplace that at least allows us to give them something while we push for the policies to be enacted so that they can actually have some real kind of income generation. So again, it's the, it's the private sector and that connection that I'm able to get their voice out and their products out in a way that I couldn't have, you know, 30, 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Well, and to connect off of that, obviously, when you have that kind of talent that's working in private industry doing all of these amazing things, you create incredible innovations. And there's a shadow side to all those innovations as well. So everyone in this room geeks out about the Internet of Things. I do, too. I'm also super stressed out about it. Because for us, in our work, in order for us to be successful, we rely on a certain level of inefficiency, if I'm to be totally transparent, inside the market, right? Mm. So the more that we automate things, the more that technology kind of subsumes our whole life, we end up eliminating what were once accessible entry-level jobs for the people that we care the most about. And whenever I talk about this, I, it's often in response to the question, what keeps you up at night? And mm-hmm. I share this as the answer to my question. And then people will push back and say, in every Every industrial age, in every industrial revolution, people were saying that all the time. And but new jobs emerged, and, and new opportunities came about. And I believe that to be true in our history. I'm still stressed out about it today, in the fact that today, average age for our population is about 39 years old. Average reading and math hovers between a sixth and eighth grade. And so, with a talent pool that that you know is struggling with that level of education. What is my opportunity on the other side in terms of jobs that may be created in the wake of these innovations? And what will happen to this talent pool? Will they be sidelined by the mainstream economy as a result? Um, I love the innovation, and also it stresses me the hell out as a, it, because of the unintended consequences it has on populations we care the most about. Do you, I just was wondering, like, kind of related to that, I mean, because this, maybe because this is what keeps me up also at night, you know, 
there's, there's sort of this idea of, you know, creative destruction of jobs and there'll be other jobs and things like that. But then meanwhile, right in the economy as we have it, there's that huge skew between what people are paid, uh, kind of half the people who are working and then the other half are way up here. And, you know, how, how do you think about that? Is that another... Like you know, the inequity yeah, between... Yeah, right. I think that that's part of the problem, but honestly, I'm heartened by the movement around the country for the fight for 15, that we're making advancements in minimum wage thresholds here in Chicago. I think we're at 13 now, and we'll inch again in July of next year and continue ratcheting up. And certainly, that is helpful, and that that is an issue that Mm -hmm. we need to solve for, but even if we had everybody at, you know, fill-in-the-blank minimum wage, we still have this skills crisis of a a, a voluminous amount of people that don't have access to skills in a quick way Mm -hmm. that helps them to be relevant immediately in the emerging marketplace. And maybe that's because I can't see the solution right now, but the distance between what we're doing and what, say, a city college is doing, to me, there is a pre-bridge to the pre-bridge to the pre-bridge to the bridge programs Mm -hmm. that we often talk about in workforce development. And that ladder up is something that I think we need to double down as a sector to solve for across the board. Thank you. I think for me, I'd be remiss not to talk about the Me Too movement and the centering of survivor stories over the last two years in our national discourse. Um, I'm only 31, but I started doing domestic violence work when I was 16, and for most of the time that I've been doing it, it's an issue that we talk about on the outskirts. Domestic violence is a private issue. It happens in people's homes. Uh, and I think what the last two years has forced us to do is recognize that it's a systemic problem, that it's a societal responsibility, and that really there's nothing private about it at all. Um, there have been so many studies done about the link between domestic violence and mass shootings, and I think people are realizing that when someone is violent in their home, they are also violent outside of the home, and it is our problem. Um, And what that has done is create a national conversation and left people asking the question two years later, well, what's the solution? Hmm. Um, Which is, quite frankly, like a moment that I'm capitalizing on. It's one of the good things in this moment that's come out of this. Uh, Because three years ago, there was a study done, and uh, the average American was asked, what financial abuse was. And most people thought that financial abuse had something to do with the economic crisis. Mm -hmm. In 99% of domestic violence cases, there is financial abuse. Mm. And we can't possibly seek to address the problem if we're not adequately defining the problem and understanding the problem. Mm. And so I think in this moment where people are asking, what can we do, what should we do, besides listening to survivors, besides believing survivors. Um, that's the space, that's the vacuum that I think we're in and the one in which we have to start talking about long-term safety and breaking the cycle by investing in survivors. Can you just take us a little deeper maybe into how, ha- I mean, uh, maybe just that subject. So financial abuse connects to, uh, you know, kind of personal, interpersonal abuse. How do you, how, you know, in the work you do, how do you think about that, or what do you, what do you engage? Sure. With? So I guess let me take a step back and actually talk about what financial abuse is. Um, it can look like anything from not being allowed to work, 
uh, losing your job because the person that's harming you makes trouble for you at work. Uh, identity mm. fraud and credit card abuse is mm. a huge problem in domestic violence cases. Not knowing where your bank accounts are mm. and what bank accounts are in your name and how much cash you have. Mm. Um, very often survivors are, are deciding whether to leave a situation where they have no job, no cash, and a poor credit score. Um, and so thinking about the work that we do, there's kind of two prongs to it. It's how do we mitigate the impact of financial abuse, mm-hmm. partnering with banks, uh, training bank tellers on how to spot financial abuse, putting in place uh, processes that, um, for example, we worked with a client who disclosed her new address to the bank. That new address was the shelter that she was staying in, and that address was written in a letter to the joint account holder who was her harm doer. So interrupting those processes, making banks, credit card companies, credit reporting agencies part of the process, uh, training shelters on how to support someone in building income, uh, building credit, uh, and creating a model, which we're doing through our social enterprise, of what survivor-informed uh, living wage flexible work looks like. Terrific. I just, just learned, learned something very new. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so what I heard was, uh, you know, some optimism about the private sector, uh, this pressure that we can exert as consumers and workers, et cetera, that, that may work as well as imposing a policy from above, or even better sometimes in terms of motivating change and change in behavior uh, and the importance of that. Um, I heard about uh, kind of the you know, future of work and the jobs, you know, disappearing and, you know, some of the issues around that. And then, um, you know, really the need for a, a, a ladder and a, with a lot more rungs on it, you know, maybe than that we typically think about. Uh, and then the Me Too movement, uh, the importance of that, and then this, this important issue that financial abuse really connect, connects to, how it connects to that, how it underpins that. Really interesting. So let me, let me turn to another kind of a, a different question. Uh, so, you know, Jim and the words I shared, you know, he talked a lot about an ecosystem and how important the ecosystem is. You know, there are so many things that happen in our environment. And I asked you kind of about trends, but then beyond trends, there are just sort of the realities of the world that we work in, the different forces that are at play. Uh, so, I, you know, I was just curious, what are some of the enabling conditions that make it possible for you to do your work? You know, what's most important? Because I think we as a community are trying to figure out how do we create a, an ecosystem that does, in fact, enable more of the kind of work we're doing to, to develop. Yeah. Do you want some... Sure. Okay. Um, I mean, unfortunately for refugees, there's not a lot in terms of enabling environment that gives them the opportunity to earn income and, like, be able to be self-sufficient. And it changes by country, right? So if the girls that we serve happen to be in Rwanda, they would actually have the ability to work because Rwanda is more um, open to refugees working. In Kenya, it's not. Um, and so, you know, I think access to finance is the biggest thing. Access to finance and being able to save their own money, right? So right now, um, even just giving the girls a stipend, they have to have a Kenyan friend who uses their M-Pesa account for us to transfer money to them. Well, we all know what happens, right? That person's getting a cut, 
you know? Um, so without being able to have access to finance and then saving it, they're going to have to pull that money out and get it in cash. As soon as you have cash, that money typically gets spent. It can get stolen, right? All of these different things. Mm-hmm. So the enabling environment to able to hold your own money and kind of have control over it is, is huge. Um, and that kind of then kind of trickles into anything. So if you're looking at women and, women and girls specifically in an emerging markets, um, you know, if we move away from refugees and you look at smallholding farmers, well, 80% of the food is produced by women, but most of the land is owned by the men. Mm-hmm. So the women don't actually own the land that they're producing the food on. And so, again, they're doing most of the work, but when that money comes back to them, they're getting minimum, and that's how you have farmers who are living in ultra or extreme poverty mm-hmm. um, despite that. So, you know, land ownership, all of these things that we, we kind of forget about, but that is how you could actually generate and create and hold on to wealth because as soon as those things aren't in place... You can train, you can, you know, give all of these opportunities, but it's not going to be able, you can't build off of that if, if that's constantly a problem. Yeah, yeah when I um, was thinking about enabling conditions in this conversation, I thought the first, the first thing that we should remember is to put the individual as the hero in this story, right? So the fact that we have the girls that want to seek for better in their lives and create these beautiful things and have commerce at their disposal, even as unjust as the environment is, like, we have the girls. In our case, we have individuals who want better for themselves and their families. They are the heroes at the end of the circle, or at the kind of center of this circle. And then the next variable for me is, you know, we're in a tight labor market right now in this country. And, and I know that those numbers don't necessarily foot to the neighborhoods that us in this room care the most about and the cities in which we work, but writ large in the country, the, the numbers very tight. And so, yes, we have companies that want to do well and do good, but some companies are coming to this conversation simply because they have to. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize that we're in a moment in time where we can use that have to moment as a real point of leverage. Um, and, you know, constantly in this sector, we are always like, please, sir, please, ma'am, may I have another, right? Like, we are constantly, we put ourselves in the position of subordination in this work because we are part of the purpose sector, and we think people are doing us a favor if they give us an employment opportunity or if they give us a grant. And we have to recognize, in response to your question about an ecosystem, is look at how large this room is. And if we were speaking from the same hymnal, if we were speaking from the same playbook, what kind of power do we leverage as a collective in terms of not just nudging private industry to do good, but in fact compelling that change or propelling that change? Like Those are the kind of conversations that I would love us to get a little edgier about in the future. Yeah. Can you? Is there an example that comes readily to mind of maybe how you feel like you're trying to leverage that pressure? Right now, we're engaging a lot of conversations around inclusive employment. And the way that we're thinking about inclusive employment is not necessarily in the traditional ways of people have diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, and how are we kind of checking those boxes and making sure we're compliant and effective, but more provocative than that. How are we proactively going after the residents of the neighborhoods in our cities which have been the most disinvested and proactively recruiting and including 
and engaging that population, which means holding a mirror to our hiring practices in terms of education and justice involvement and all the things. And it also means once an individual is hired, how are we changing, how we're onboarding and advancing that talent once they're in so that they can stick and stay and feel included over time. That conversation can't happen by one operator. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we see, you know, uh, 1,500 people a year, but that's 1,500 out of a jillion mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. But if we all were agitating around that mm-hmm. topic, I feel like we could just propel this much mm-hmm. faster than mm-hmm. we could as any single mm-hmm. operator. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Thank you. I think for us, um, the ecos- we're building the ecosystem by leveraging technology. And that simple things from, you know, our social enterprise sells products exclusively made by survivors of domestic violence uh, here in the U.S. And it's connecting uh, survivor entrepreneurs to a global marketplace through this online store that they otherwise don't have. You know, the, the first people that buy your products are friends and family, and very often our clients have been isolated. And... Um, and don't have those those first five sales. Um, so even something as small as that, or our uh, training program for shelters, we're training nationally from our headquarters in LA through e-learning and virtual financial coaching and online technical assistance, and just to be able to do this at scale because of technology. But I think the most... Um, the most kind of uh, stark example of that, when we uh, started out this work, we were working one-on-one with uh, survivors to figure out how they could get compensation through legal claims. So to cover the medical bills, the property damage, relocation costs. And this was like very traditional legal services. They would call us, we would schedule a meeting, we would do an intake uh, and let them know what their options were. There'd be a pause, there'd be a follow-up call. So in 2017, we did this with 150 clients. And I was like, there's got to be a better way. Like, we're just providing, at the end of the day, we're just providing legal information. And for most of these options, you don't actually need an attorney. You just need to know what form to fill out or who to speak to. And so we put it all online. We created an online tech tool. um, And all the laws are state by state. So we started by launching it in California at the beginning of last year. And we had 25,000 users in the first 48 hours. Wow. And so that kind of thing is the, can only happen through technology. And so through all of our programs, we're trying to figure out, like, is there a more efficient way to do this? Um, and, and how can we build that ecosystem in this way? I wonder if you can comment just on, on that, because I think that clearly technology um, is part of the enabling ecosystem or environment. Uh, I know what a lot of people get concerned about is, you know, in the absence of the human uh, element, it's efficient and a lot of people maybe access it, but in the absence of a more human touch, you know, does it get used well? Does it get used right? Does the right people use it? Whatever it may be. And I just wonder how you think about that. Yeah. And I think it goes to the point about the person showing up wanting to help themselves and, you know, we call it a self-help tool, and it's exactly that. It's mm-hmm. If we could just put the information out there for folks, they can figure it out, and they want to figure it out. And they don't, you know, so many of our services are predicated on the fact that I am the service provider, you need the service. 
and you are beholden to me, and I am beholden to whichever grantmaker needs me to report on every life circumstance that happens to you while you're a client of me. And, you know, my vision for this when I created it was I want to build a tool that people can come to, get exactly what they need, and leave without ever knowing who I am and without me ever knowing who they are and really just democratizing the services that we can in that way. So it's very untraditional and that's part of the pushback that we got is, well, people need help. And what they're proving is actually they can help themselves. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I I think one thing that I also wonder about is just the whole issue of trust in that. You know, because we're in a world right now where there's a lot of mistrust of things that are coming to people through uh, technology. So how you, maybe it's part of, you know, the way you communicate or who you are as yeah, an organization. Yeah, we're really thoughtful about the language that we use on it, the way that it looks. We're very clear at the beginning through our disclaimer, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, this is how your information would be used, this is how it would never be used. Um, but I think ultimately people want the information so they come for it. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, I was thinking uh, uh, with the the first example around uh, you know women producing the food but men owning the land and you know uh, and then your example on uh, finances being so critical uh, in terms of abuse you know thinking of like from the movie Cabaret you know the song Money Makes the World Go Round you know there there are these financial issues at the root of some of these problems and it's an interesting thing because I think one thing at least that I've noticed about the social enterprise sector in contrast maybe to more traditional or old school nonprofits, is more of a willingness in fact an interest a hunger to understand money <laughs> you know it was sort of in the old-fashioned nonprofit world you could say you know people were a little embarrassed to even talk about money where money came from who provided the money how much money it cost to do things and I feel like social enterprise brings a very different sensibility to that and in a way you're bringing that into the work too. this deeper analysis of what some of these you know, economic issues are. So really, really interesting. Um, so just maybe to get in uh, at a more detailed level, you know, what, what are some of the maybe less visible or obvious personal barriers that impact the people that you work with? And what do you do about it? Because I, I think, you know, some, sometimes we make assumptions about each of the different groups each of you are talking about what the concerns are, what the challenges are. But you're really into the work. You know, maybe there's some things that are a little more hidden. We've heard a little bit about that, but just, you know, perhaps. Yeah, so I mean, in addition to the things that I mentioned, trauma, right, and the impacts of trauma that they have on the girls um, that we serve. So most of them are coming to us around the age of 14, 15, 16. Typically, they have suffered um, some sort of sexual violence. Oftentimes, they come pregnant from that or with children from that. Um, and then, you know, there is this kind of expectation of you know, pull up your bootstraps. And it's like, well, ha- the, this is a teenager. I mean, remember how traumatic it was to just be a teenager anyway. <laughs> and then you add on top of it this immense amount of trauma, losing their family, sometimes having their parents killed in front of them. And then now they're in a new country, new languages, and you're telling them that it's also going to be exceptionally difficult for you to be able to earn an income. You have to go into the informal sector. Even then, your businesses will get raided. And, oh, yeah, you have to compete with the Kenyans as well as older refugee women and men who are highly skilled as well 
and you are these young teenage girls who are coming in and living on your own, supporting your own children, and mm. oftentimes they're the ones who are supporting their siblings as well. Um, and we don't talk about the impact of trauma and what that is from a learning perspective, right? Just sitting in a classroom doesn't always work if you have all of this like innate trauma that you're working with. So all of our programs are trauma-informed, um, and I think we're just starting to see you know, psychology and neuroscience talking about the impacts of trauma in long term, right? That I think there was a, an article that said the impact of being, that the trauma of being um, ultra or extreme poor is essentially like waking up every day drunk, right? Your brain is in such survival mode at that point that you are not able to make cognitive long term decisions. You are making short term survival decisions. And we're asking people whose brain is in that position to be able to, you know, do these, like, long play livelihoods. And we're not putting into account how much of that trauma is impacting their ability to do that. And it's, and it's consistent. And then you get caught in a dependency cycle, right? Because you're not able to pull yourself out of that because it takes one little thing to pull you down. You know, one bill, one, one little tiny thing. Um, that for someone who's at the kind of margins, it's huge in their budget versus something, you know, if, if you have more kind of disposable income. So I think trauma and the and, and how submersive it is is a big thing that we're... We yeah, and I, th- I'm, I would think we'll, we'll hear more about that. I'm, I'm just curious, is there anything you've been doing, maybe an example or something, where you see something working? Like what, what is helping to yeah. address that? So for us, I mean, for for the girls, they really say that refugee is a sisterhood for them, right? Coming to a place where there's other girls who have gone through similar things, they don't feel as isolated or as alone, and, you know, we give them counseling, we have case managers, but it's really the relationships they build together, because then they're able to say, okay, here's what I've gone through, she's gone through something similar, and that, that there's power and strengths to kind of doing it together, um, and so I think, you know, these environments of really being able to bring folks together who have gone through the same thing and then finding their voice together and being able to push that mm-hmm. out is really mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. as opposed to a top-down, right? We don't want to just say this is what you need to do X, Y, and Z, but together collectively they come back and also tell us here's what we need to see in our programs, right? Mm-hmm. So they've told us it's great that you teach us to tailor, but we want more, right? We want IT skills. We want to do X, Y, and Z. So then we have to go and figure out how to bring that to them. Mm-hmm. Just to uh, respond to that, um, there was a 2014 study done of domestic violence survivors here in the U.S., and it was looking at when they went through programming at shelters or transitional housing programs, what did they consider to be a success for them? And actually nobody said that receiving services was a success, but an overwhelming majority said that the community that they built with other survivors was where they saw success. And I think it's so telling as service providers um, that we need to be we need to be essentially getting that creating space for community and then getting out of the way because there's so much more that can happen in those, in those shared spaces. I love that. Um, for those of you that started your morning at CARA today, hopefully you got a sense of the community that we seek to build mm-hmm. there. It's very peer-to-peer, peer mm-hmm. co-accountability and like love, you know, just mad love. Um, and so I guess my riff on what Jaylon shared is that 
you know, oftentimes in the work of workforce development, people get stuck in a conversation around solving for financial poverty mm-hmm. or solving for poverty of assets, maybe in exclusivity. But I think what Kara, by the way, is a Gaelic word that means friend. The founder's notion was that maybe those of us that have and those of us that struggle, the difference between is lacking a good bench of friends in your greatest time of need, and that's what he wanted to build. And so for us, beneath the financial poverty and the poverty of assets is actually often poverty of esteem, poverty of relationships. You know, who is my ride or die? that I can hang with and rely on in my greatest time of need. And so some of that is built through community. Others of that, in response to Carla's question about, like, what are the interventions? I mean, in our program, we talk about love. Hmm. You know, whose relationship do you need to restore in order to really rebuild your future? Um, We explore the notion of forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive Like, what Samsonite do you sincerely need to check at the door so that you can continue to focus on your future? And on their face, those are not traditional interventions you would need to go get ready to go back to work. But what we realized over those last three decades is the noise of life is what constantly gets in the way. That the skills that we need to re-enter the workforce, we can play to that, we can manage to that, we can build to that. But this other noise is what we also concurrently need help solving for in order to make uh, financial poverty a possibility. So we see financial and relational poverty kind of going hand in hand in that way. Thank you. Do you want to add anything on that? personal barriers? Yeah, I think the only thing I would say is we did, we did the math on LA um, and we looked at what a single parent with children who are in need of daycare or childcare um, uh, working a minimum wage job and bare minimum expenses leaving nothing for emergencies or flat tires or dentist appointments bare minimum expenses were double income at minimum wage. And so I think the thing that so many people are facing is it's actually not possible to stay safe on a minimum wage. Uh, and the n- survivors go back to abuse an average of seven times before they finally leave. And the number one reason they go back is financial insecurity. And so we can provide people with temporary housing. We can you know, support people in getting restraining orders and also, if we don't have a wage that people can live on, and uh, I think it's something like 60% of children in this country grow up in single households, um, and those households can't afford safety, so what are we doing? Um, and that's the kind of the, the biggest structural obstacle that we're up against as we're trying to create a world in which people can be safe. Yeah. Uh, it- I think that that last challenge is is uh, especially tough. Uh, uh, I guess what I was thinking about when all of you were talking a little bit is, you know, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned this too, Maria. It's just, you know, building um, building our community, building the community of people that you're working with, is obviously a big part of what you do. Uh, you know, for us, I think at Red F also, you know, we've been reflecting on the way we try to provide help and support to each of you, to the social enterprises. We tend, we've tended to do that transactionally, you know, Red F trying to absorb whatever we can and then offer that to you and then learn from you and 
pass it on to somebody else. But more recently, I think we've been doing more to try to foster community among the organizations that we work with, and it, it's kind of a similar reflection to what we're talking about here. I mean, it, it takes a certain amount of, uh, of courage. It takes a set of relationships, you know, just to do this work. And, and of course, uh, you learn best from other people who are struggling with the same issues that you are. Uh, but we're all very busy, and so it's hard to find the time, all, you know, to pass on what we know to others and build community together. But obviously it's, uh, it's essential if we're going get, to get where we want to go. Uh, and I think this issue of trauma, I mean, it's just, I, I was asking kind of what do, you, what do you do about it, and I appreciated uh, the comments and then, um, you know, some of the things you said on the poverty of esteem and relationships. And I think, I hope it's an issue that a lot of people here start talking about during the conference because I don't think we have a full handle yet on how do you, how do you address that and all the deep uh, ways that it impacts your life and, you know, the way you make choices, et cetera. So uh, great issues. Uh, so may maybe let's start to turn to, to this. Um, you know, and Maria, you kind of raised this, so maybe, maybe I'll pick on you first. I mean, you sort of said, you know, what more can we do uh, together to create change? You know, you made a few suggestions, but... You know, we we are we want to create a society where people's basic needs are, are met, where people can thrive, uh, less inequity, more equity, uh, where everybody's got a chance to live a, a decent, a prosperous life. And yet, you know, we see the gulf and the forces arrayed against us. And there's been, you know, millions of nonprofits and money spent and foundations and government. And, you know, I think we all feel very frustrated with the, these larger forces. So I guess in terms of this community, you know, what, what, you know, what do you think we might be thinking about together to try to uh, contribute to that better, better society we want to see? Um, I, I hate to be a, a one note on this, but it, it, truly I, I hover around this concept of like Red Rover, Red Rover. Do we remember this game? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, I think we're in a Red Rover, Red Rover moment. We're at a real inflection point in our country. Um, we've had lots of good things happen. For example, what do I see across the national landscape? With the First Step Act, I feel heartened by some of the incremental movements in criminal justice reform. But I would imagine a lot of the people in this room are looking for, well, what's the next step act? I'm glad that we did the first step, but what is the next step? But I can't discount the, the movement. The movement is going in the right direction. We have associations like the Society for Human Resource Management that just released a an ex-offender integration toolkit. So if you're an employer that wants to consider second chance hiring, here's what you can do. Also good movement. In the state of Illinois, we've passed some legislation around um, convictions related to marijuana, so which would affect lots and lots of people in terms of expunging um, convictions that have prevented them from re-entry. And we're in a new day in Chicago under a new administration with Mayor Lightfoot. So I, I feel and see all of these things that are happening, country, state, city. Um, 
And yet, I think what we need, and this maybe goes to what some of what Jaylon shared, is we don't really have cross-sectoral Red Rover, Red Rover. You know, so like I'm glad about all this legislation, but honestly, I don't know how to double dutch my way into activating it for everybody that I care a lot about. Mm. And so I need a public sector partner who's ready to just align everybody and help us to figure out how do we activate this in a meaningful way for the people that we care about. And similarly, mm. Sherm, I'm so proud of what they're doing with this tool. Toolkit, mm. and also toolkit um, it does not equal solution. Mm-hmm. So when we do toolkits and guides, all of that energy is placed very well. But we also need concierges. You know, we need coaches that are going to help companies adopt the toolkits and guides in a way that is actionable and precise for where they're at in terms of their own intention and aspiration. And if we don't have those coordinated Red Rover, Red Rover moments. I stress out about whether we'll have all this good intention, to your point, Carla, yeah. but, but let that intention kind of fall flat because the action underneath it is not yet well-girded. Well, what's stopping us? I mean, what, you know, so, I mean, sure, we're busy, yeah. but, you know, because I, I feel that, too. There's so, I think we were just talking about this before the session, you know, there, there's all these terrible things going on, and we read about them ad nauseum in the newspaper, but, it, you know, or social media, but... You know, meanwhile, there's all this great stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, look at what you're all doing, you know, and there's the, multiplied everybody in this room. So, but it is, it's just spots of light yeah. instead of something that's really transformative. So yeah. what's stopping us? I mean, I think in, like with a lot of um, movements that we have in this country, um, allyship is important. So in this case, I mean, I'm looking at, we're having a conversation with BMO Harris later this month. I'm looking at the Bank of America table. Like, if private industry was in a three-legged race with some folks on, on the purpose sector, I guess, side of the house, compelling the rest of the world to listen, then it's not just us please, sir, please, ma'am, may I have another? But it's us with an ally in private industry that's helping to agitate. Like, maybe we need to be more intentional about what those pairings look like so that we can really flip a switch in what's Mm -hmm. happening right Mm now. Yeah, thank you. Other thoughts on this? Yeah, I think kind of to build off, I, I tend to say good intentions don't necessarily mean it's a good solution, right? And I think oftentimes we don't listen, and this, and this happens a lot coming from kind of the global development space, is we don't listen to the local community and we try to come in and just drop a solution in that then ends up messing up the actual system and creating a bigger problem, right? Like the idea of just sending shoes potentially is a great intention, but are we accidentally disrupting a market that locally, shoes are pretty easy to make locally, right? And if there's shoe cobblers that have businesses, let's not accidentally disrupt that. And so we tend to get ourselves caught in these dependency cycles because we want to solve it very quickly. You know, we feel good about solving it, but we're not taking that kind of market-based approach. So, you know, I think before anyone starts a nonprofit or anything like that, can it be solved from a market-based perspective? And that's kind of like question number one. Um, and then two, I think the collaboration, right? So we don't, we're not incentivized to collaborate, especially if we're on the nonprofit of the social enterprise side, because a lot of my funding comes from grants, and I'm competing with five other organizations, and we're not incentivized to share our data or share our best practices. So we're all doing pretty much same versions of the same training and the same interventions, and one of us learns that it doesn't work, or all of us have learned that it doesn't work, and we're not telling one another because we're not incentivized to, right? We're going to be penalized if we show that. So our data is not transparent. Our learning is not transparent. 
um, as opposed to if we actually come together and collaborate, most of the time we're all doing one little piece in a larger value chain, and if we work together, we could solve that a lot faster, and if we were incentivized to kind of do that as well. Yeah, it, it, I wonder, I mean, it makes me think about your very first point you made, which is, you know, about kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be dictated from above. Sometimes it's stronger when there's just motivation from consumers or whatever it may be. And I guess I wonder that about, I don't know if you have a thought on, on that problem you're talking about, because I think that problem has been here for a long time. And we keep thinking, well, maybe the funders will be more, uh, you know, help us collaborate better or whatever it is. But it's we who do the work on the ground or you who do the work on the ground who really see the problem. And I, I just, yeah, I mean, I appreciated your point, Marie, about intentionality around this. But, you know, I, I guess I just wonder what more can we do uh, to, you know, begin to bust through some of that. I don't know if you have any... Yeah, I, 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 this is a piece that I have been struggling with for a little bit because especially on that as a nonprofit that has a social enterprise component, most of my funding is still dictated by the donors. Yeah. And until the donor incentive structure changes, I can only do so much before I have to kind of fall into the system yeah. of competing with all yeah. of these other organizations. And so either all the nonprofits come together and go tell our donors at the same time, hey, stop penalizing us for this. We want to work together. Or it's going to need to be the donors that come around and say, we're going to actually give you credit by sharing what doesn't work, right? And I think that's where, you know, the private sector, the market course corrects. In the social sector, there is no real course correction because the donor incentive structure, for the most part, depending if you're looking at philanthropy or government, et cetera, the philanthropic side, a lot of times it's hearts and minds, which is great, but it doesn't course correct. And so oftentimes we're giving money to solutions that have a charismatic leader or, you know, there's a lot of momentum, but it not, it's not necessarily the right solution or it hasn't pivoted or adapted or changed based on what the environment is on the ground. And so if we, if we have donors look at things the same way that they do in the private sector where they made a ton of money, take that same lens to the social sector and in the same way that in Silicon Valley now we say fail fast, fail cheap, you know, fail all this stuff, in the social sector we're terrified of failure, right? Because then we're going to lose our grants. But that learning in of itself is just as valuable as when we find out that something works. And we should, we should be able to kind of share that. Thank you. Great. Sonia, do you want to share anything on this? You know, I don't remember what the original question was, but there's been so much. <laughs> what could we do said. together uh, <laughs> to create a better world? What should we be doing? How do we how do we work together, the people here in this room, to you know, create the kind of ecosystem or you know you, set you, of thank yeah. Thank you. But yeah, no, the points that have been made were so good. I think two things that I'm thinking about on, in the same vein of, and it's really easy to blame funders for everything, by the way, and it's not my intention to do that in this point, but I think broadly we have to put domestic violence and gender-based violence back into the main framework of the way that we're thinking about problems. So often I will tell someone, a telefunder, grant maker, what I do, and they'll be like, I love what you do. It's so powerful. We're actually focused on homelessness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, really appreciate your work. My focus is on women's health. <laughs> and this happens like at least once a month. And 
And obviously at first I think they're joking and they're not. And how can we think about these problems in all of their complexity? And even even gender-based violence, we have you know, sex trafficking funders, we have sexual assault funders, we have workplace harassment funders, we have domestic violence funders. And everyone's therefore siloed and we're breaking up a systemic problem into small pieces. And we can't, I think what I would challenge everyone in the room to do in whatever your field is, whatever your issue area is, is to like take the risk and try to think about the whole problem and try to push everyone around you to think about the whole problem because we've broken everything down to simplify it and I think if we're trying to solve all the individual pieces, we're going to miss the whole puzzle. Okay. So we're in a lightning round, and I asked you this before, so maybe hopefully you've thought about it, but what, what can you make a quick public commitment to to do about these very things you just mentioned. And I would say for Red F, for us, uh, we are going to do, we will do more to convene cohorts of people that we work with so that, uh, to, you know, they can get to know each other and work together more to try to solve these problems. Lightning round. Anybody? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been going to even my competitors and just bringing roundtables together and saying we've we've got to come together and solve this problem. There's not enough out there for us to do it on our own, and the only way it's going to happen is together. Terrific. Thank you. Our vision, uh, newly minted, is to fuel a courageous national movement to eradicate financial and relational poverty. And so I want to go out on the stump, and uh, the rest of my colleagues do too, to talk about relational poverty and what does it mean, and how do we stimulate relational richness back in our country, in our families, and in our communities. Beautiful. Uh, Over the next 18 months, we're going to be piloting uh, peer-to-peer financial support groups for survivors. Um, so that no matter where you are, whether there are services in your area, if you've left or not, if you're in a particular cultural community, uh, you can build community around uh, building financial security and safety uh, to the point that everyone made about community being at the core of everything that we need to do. Wow. Well, listen, I am inspired, informed, better educated, having listened to all of you. Really amazing. And I just want to encourage people here to pick up on some of these themes uh, through the conference. I know it's kind of trite and everybody's always telling you this, but this is a special opportunity to meet people you don't know. And I know people tend to just stay with the people they do know. So I really encourage you to, you know, go meet somebody else and ask them something that you know, maybe was provocative about the panel today and and carry this on. So it was a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. And thanks for the great work you you did. Thank you. Thanks all of you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Let's Get to Work. To access all of our content and resources to help you grow your business and increase the impact of your employment social enterprise, head over to redfworkshop.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and subscribing. That'll help new listeners discover the show. Stay tuned for a new episode next month. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.